Greetings, everybody. Happy Easter Tide to you. You know, Easter Tide goes on for about 50 days until Pentecost Sunday, and then we celebrate the, the sending of the Holy Spirit by God the Father and God the Son. And so we get to celebrate the resurrection for about six or seven weeks here, which will be great. In celebrating the resurrection, we also want to look at our response in the resurrected life, and that has a lot to do with how we handle and manage our material possessions. And uh, Martin Luther used to say that the last thing to get converted in a man was his pocketbook. And so when your pocketbook gets converted, you can rest assured you're probably thoroughly converted. Uh, But pocketbooks need to be converted because by nature they don't do what God wants them to do. Pocketbooks need to be directed by regenerate men. Uh, who know that the property that they thought was in their possession is actually not their possession, it's under their stewardship, and all their property, not just the tithe, but all of it belongs to the Lord, and we're managing it on His account. That's the paradigm shift that takes place at conversion. Now, Paul, in his letter to the, to the Corinthians, uh, we have seen, uh, is very concerned that they understand the grace of the gospel in these first seven chapters uh, were just tremendous chapters on uh, how the ministry of the new covenant makes all the difference in the world. We got to chapter 8 last week and we saw that the second major topic he brings up is the need to collect the offering to go back to the poor Jews in Jerusalem who were under a famine. And this was kind of the home church. This was the, this was the Vatican, if you will. It was Jerusalem, the home city of the church and The saints there were in real need. And Paul is saying that we care for one another, even across ethnic and national lines. Now, in the first century A.D., it was most uncommon for charity to be given to anything beyond your household. Everybody had to pay their taxes to Caesar. But when it came to charity, it was yourself and your household. And it was unheard of that charity would be extended Uh, to a stranger, first of all, and secondly, a stranger uh, of another race or another ethnic group. That was completely unheard of. So what Paul is teaching the church is something new. Generosity across national boundaries, generosity across ethnic boundaries, generosity even to strangers. This is something new for first century pagan world. And so when he asked for an offering to go back to Jerusalem... It just it, it contradicts everything that one would have thought of in their civic life prior to becoming a Christian. This is a new idea. Now, we've also seen that this offering is very important because it's an expression of the unity of the church. In the first century, the big division in the church was not white and black. The big division in the church was Jew and Gentile. And almost everywhere Paul went, he was preaching on that topic about how we live together as two ethnic groups, with, in that case, two religious backgrounds. And the reason is that the gospel itself is demonstrated as well as proclaimed. And so if we're not demonstrating the gospel, our proclamation is insincere. It's hypocritical. And so we're undermining the expansion of the kingdom and the integrity of our message when we are not dealing generously with one another across ethnic boundaries. 
That's true in the apostles' uh, epistles in several places, but here in 2 Corinthians as well. Because what he's saying is that the Jewish Christians have come to the conclusion, with a little help, that Gentiles do not have to be circumcised, do not have to keep the Sabbath, do not have to keep all the Jewish rituals. And at the same time, we have said that with our wealth as Gentiles, we are going to help our Jewish brethren. And there's, as Paul calls it, equality. There is fairness. There is family-like behavior with one another. So Paul had already asked the Corinthians to gather their offering. Remember, they had started it. You see it addressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And then Paul discovers that the collection for this offering has lapsed. Now, we began to look last time at how he, in this letter, is writing them and saying, you all pick up that offering again, because when I come, I want to collect it so that I can take it to Jerusalem to be mixed with the Macedonian offering. Now, he teaches them in that 8th chapter of 2 Corinthians that we as believers must be generous. And you found the key to it in verse 9. For the one whom we emulate was extraordinarily generous with us. He left the throne of heaven itself, impoverished himself, that we might become rich, and we're walking in his steps. So if Christ is in your heart, there is a spirit of divestment that's in your heart for the sake of your poor neighbor. So Paul is saying that what I'm asking you to do is consistent with the DNA that you've been given by virtue of the Holy Spirit being in your life. This is the very character of Christ. This is what he does. He's generous. Now, when we turn to chapter 9, we're going to see that he continues to build on this. And uh, brothers, it's hard to think of anything more significant in our age than this idea of generosity. We are swimming in wealth. And I know that sometimes, you know, we lose our jobs or we can't pay our bills on time. But we just have to keep remembering that if you make $50,000 in this country, you're in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. And if you make above the poverty line, you're in the top 10% of wage earners in the world. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you must live your life with a view to the world of your brothers and sisters. And some of them are really struggling. You cannot just live your life based on comparing yourself to the Joneses next door. If you do that, you become myopic, you become uh, parochial in your thinking, and you've refused to think like Jesus Christ who loves the world. God so loved the world that He gave His Son. And so we, we are world people when we come to Christ. And we begin to think about the meaning of our lives in the scope of the entire world. And the church around the world needs help. Now here he's speaking specifically about the church. Now we have different types of offerings. We care for the poor here in Memphis. We serve one another in our own church. We care for the lost around the world. But in this case, Paul's talking about the saved around the world. And that we share our goods for the saved. Well, how do we do that? Well, today, we have brothers and sisters all over the world, on every continent, who are needing needing training or materials or food for the table. They're being persecuted and need protection. All kinds of things. So just as we care for the lost around the world, we also care for for the saved around the world, many of whom are in dire straits. So Paul is teaching us here how to do this. And we're going to see in chapter 9, He's especially teaching us to do it with a particular heart. Our hearts are important because God, above all things, doesn't want our money. He's got a cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything. He doesn't have to have your money. He can do with it whatever He wants to. He can strike you dead and take your money anytime He wants to. 
So it's your heart that he wants. And in chapter 9, we get to the heart of the matter, that it's about the heart. Let's look at chapter 9 then as he picks up his argument. And as we do so, we'll be thinking about our giving and about how we're doing our giving. Now, it is super, superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of, uh, for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you, because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. Wow. Let's take a look at it. We're going to look at two things, the problem with reluctant giving and the blessing of cheerful giving. But let's look first of all at the problem with reluctant giving. The problem with the reluctant giving. It reminds me of the little kid who uh, got into the cookie jar and uh, he got his hand in, and he couldn't get it out. And his mama tried everything, soap, hot water, you know, pulling on it, couldn't get it out. And finally, she was ready to break the cookie jar to get his arm out. And he said, uh, Mommy, just a minute, would it help if I let go of the cookie? Uh, you know, well, of course it would help if you let go of the cookie. Uh, and that's the way it is with us. We get t- caught in tight places. We can't figure out our finances. Would it help if you let go of some of that that you're grasping onto? Yeah, it would help. Uh, and there's a problem with reluctant giving. It gets you all gummed up, as we're going to see. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, Paul says that our witness is diminished. Witness to whom? Well, your fellow churches to begin with. Paul says, I've been boasting about you to the Macedonians. Now, isn't this interesting? <laughs> Paul said in chapter 8 that he, he was saying to the Corinthians, let me boast to you about the Macedonians. <laughs> so when he was with the Corinthians... He boasts about the Macedonians, and when he's with the Macedonians, he boasts about the Corinthians. Now, I told you the other day that uh, whenever I go to other churches, I'm always looking for something I can come home and boast about uh, to remind you that others are, are moving 
forward, moving ahead and being aggressive in their kingdom mentality. Well, at the same time, in those same churches, I'm boasting about you to them. And that's exactly what the apostle does. Now, it's not manipulative. It's simply saying God is at work in these various congregations. And we're doing it together. Anybody who loves Memphis and wants to see Memphis do well knows something very clearly. No single church, no single denomination is going to change Memphis. It's going to be all the brethren working together and being aware of each other and thanking God for each other and yoking arm in arm together to change the city. And it's going to be together. And that's what Paul is saying. You Corinthians are not alone. I'm not asking you second Presbyterians or you Christ Methodist people or you independent Presbyterians or anybody else, first Evan people, to, to divest yourselves while everybody goes rich. No, we're doing this all together. And that's the way it is in all those churches I mentioned and the other ones that you belong to, and I'm grateful for it. But Paul is saying, if you fall back, if you fall back, you're diminishing your witness to other people. It's going to affect the, the Macedonians. They've been gathering this generous gift thinking that you were going to yoke with them. And then I bring some Macedonians with me later on and they find out that you guys are being stingy. You're going to humiliate all of us. And what it's going to do is it's going to begin to fracture the body of Christ. So the fracturing will begin among the Gentile churches. And then, of course, eventually there'll be a fracture between the Jews and Gentiles because they're losing their bonds. And so Paul is saying that the problem with reluctant giving is that it sets a lousy testimony and it, 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 um, it causes the churches not to be united in what they're doing together. Now, secondly, verses 3 and 4, uh, Paul teaches us that our leaders have to treat us like children when we give reluctantly. So what you're, you're doing when you give reluctantly, you're making your Sunday school teacher, your pastor, your uh, ministry leader uh, come out and beg you. And that's treating you like children. Uh, no, Paul says that uh, I'm sending brothers ahead so that when we come, it's, the gift is ready. And Paul is saying that I want the gift ready for Titus and for all those that are coming with him. I want you to overwhelm them with your generosity. It reminds me of Exodus when Moses finally had to tell the people, stop bringing your gifts. We've got enough. Wouldn't that be a wonderful message? Have you ever gotten a letter from your church saying, would you all just slow it down a little bit? We got too much money in the bank and we don't like sitting on money. So you all just give it to, to the charity of your choice. Have you ever gotten a letter like that? Well, maybe it's because the, the church administrations are a little uh, self-centered, but it might be because churches are. Because we've not been overwhelming our leaders with the generosity coming from the people. Paul says this is the way it's supposed to work. Generosity is supposed to bubble up from gospel life. And we're to feel a sense of abundance in the giving. Paul says Macedonians gave even when it made them poor. They even gave what they didn't have. They skipped meals to give. Why? Because of their joy in the Lord. Thirdly, in verse 5, notice that the problem with reluctant giving is that it reflects that our hearts are cold. Paul says that it may be ready as a willing gift, verse 5, not as an exaction. Uh, the old Moffat translation says, uh, ready as a, a willing gift, not as money wrung out of you. And he calls it here a willing gift, or, or literally, uh, it, it, it can be translated a gift of blessing. 
Because the reason is that the gift uh, that's given for the poor has a way of calling down a blessing upon the poor. So it's uh, literally, he calls it a gift of blessing. It's a gift that's going to bless somebody else. And you're calling upon a blessing from the Lord when you give gifts for the poor. And Paul is saying here that the reason that reluctant giving is so tragic is it reflects hearts that are cold toward the Lord and cold toward the poor. You may remember in Matthew chapter 25 when the various talents were given by the master and the first two came back and they had earned uh, you know, double of what they were given. But the third servant came back, the one with one talent, and he said, Master, uh, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So the problem with chintzy giving is a lack of trust in our heart toward Him. It's a cynicism toward God. Yeah, I know what the Bible says, but I don't really believe it's really that true. I believe the Bible is partially true. I believe it kind of reflects a deity who's up in the sky somewhere who generally is benevolent, but I don't really trust it word for word. And our chintzy given reflects that kind of attitude. And it reflects a cynicism toward the Lord. He's a hard master who reaps where he didn't sow. And he recruits people like us to do all the hard work and make all the money. And then he just scrapes in the proceeds. That's what the third servant was saying. It was a matter of his heart. That's the reason he didn't work and double his talent. And so the problem with the reluctant giving is that it reveals a heart that doesn't trust the Lord and His promises. And remember, that's what the Lord wants from us. So when there's a generous, cheerful giving from His sons, He knows that His sons trust Him to take care of them. And His sons trust Him to bring out the best outcome from the, uh, the lifestyle that He commands. So that's what the Apostle is saying in these first five verses. You all beware of not gathering in the gift, this missionary gift, this generous gift, because uh, you'll ruin your testimony. You're you're asking to be treated like children, and uh, your hearts are cold toward the Lord when you you go that route. Now, secondly, look at verses 6 through 15. It turns a little bit more positive, doesn't it? Uh, We see the blessing of cheerful giving. And I want us to see three things. First of all, we are greatly blessed. It is truly more blessed to give than to receive. That's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Do you believe it? Here's how you'll know if you believe it. If you give generously and cheerfully. Because you know you're making out like a bandit. Because it is more blessed to give than to receive. (laughs) The blessing of cheerful giving. We are greatly blessed. First of all, in verse 6, we see that we reap bountifully. Paul says, here's my point. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 
Now, here's the analogy that he's using. It's a clear farming analogy. He says, if the farmer goes out and he harvests all of his, all of his wheat, and he takes it in and eats almost all of it, and just saves a few seeds to sow for the next year's crop, he's going to have a puny crop next year. But if he'll take in his wheat, eat the part that he needs, and then sow bountifully in his field, next year he's going to have a big crop. It's just that simple. So the analogy he's using is, fellow farmers, that it's not as though you're losing out when you save seed to give away to the ground. Why? Because the ground is going to fructify and produce more crop. So he's saying, same principle in giving. When you trust God's provision, and the farmer's trusting the field, trusting the weather, and trusting the natural uh, effects that God has put into place. And uh, so we trust the Lord. And so we give generously, happily, because we're really trusting Him to provide for us. We reap bountifully, just as a farmer does. Now, um, you can look at these several places in the Scriptures which teach us about the bountiful effects of giving. But I want to contrast something here very important. And that would be a contrast between what Paul is teaching here and much of the teaching that's popular on TV these days and for, for the past many years. And that's what we call the health and wealth gospel. You know, that it, if you sow your seed, God will bring back to you, you know, hundredfold. Well, the teaching that's often on the, on the TV with these, some of these very popular preachers, and there are two types of them. There's the Benny Hinn type. Uh, the Pentecostal type. And then there's the non-Pentecostal Joel Osteen. But they're giving you the same basic message. That you can do it. God has given you the principles. And if you'll just be positive and optimistic, if you'll sow the seed, it'll come back to you materially. Materially. So the key contrast here we want to draw is that much of the popular teaching about sowing and reaping has to do with if you'll sow the seed, then you'll get back more than ever materially. Now, uh, in the Old Testament, we can certainly understand why someone would, would think that. Because in Malachi chapter 3, for example, if you'll bring the tithes into the storehouse, I'll open the windows of heaven and pour out so much blessing, you'll not be able to contain it. And what's he talking about? He's talking about your fields that are going to bear fruit, your cattle and livestock that are going to do well. He is talking materially in the Old Testament. Why? Because in the Old Testament... God had carved out what we call the Holy Land. It was land holy to Him for His holy people, in which place He would bless them materially for their obedience. And all you have to do is look at the curses, curses and blessings in Deuteronomy that we studied a few years ago, and you'll see that when we do this, God promises He'll do that in the Holy Land. It was also governmentally a theocracy. God is the king, and he rules, and he rules through his kings. And he rules his people, and his law uh, is the law of the state. So the law of the state is the law of the church. It's a theocracy. Now, we are now dispersed, as Israel was in Babylon. We also are in Babylon. We're in nations all around the world, none of which are the Holy Land, even though people will say this is God's country. Well, folks, no country is God's country, and every country is God's country. There is not a holy land now where God uh, causes good to happen when we obey and causes 
impoverishment to happen when we disobey. That doesn't apply anymore because we're out of the Holy Land. Now, one day, we'll return to the Holy Land, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And there, once again, you'll see the blessing of God materially based on our obedience, and our obedience will be perfect. And therefore, we'll have perfect blessing. So it'll all return in in the ultimate theocracy that returns at the end of the age. But in this age, we're not in a theocracy and not on the Holy Land. And therefore, cause and effect between obedience and material blessing is not one-to-one and not guaranteed. You say, well, then why should I bother? Because there is a blessing. It's just simply not that your crops are going to increase or your house is going to be bigger or your car is not going to fail. It's in your relationship with the Lord. You're going to have more of Him, and He is going to care for you. And it does involve material care, but not in the sense that either Benny Hinn or Joel Osteen are preaching. They're preaching this formulaic life that if you'll do this spiritually, if you'll pray more, if you'll speak in tongues or whatever it is, then God's material blessings will come. And if you send me an offering, then God will bless you with more material goods. And on the other hand, with Joel Osteen, if you'll just follow these principles and be optimistic, then good things are going to happen to you. It's cause and effect. And that's not what the apostle is talking about here. He's not talking about the greater increase of your wealth. He's not speaking of that. Keep reading the text. In fact, let's read ahead just a little bit and look at verse uh, 8. And uh, he says... um, that God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, look at this, you may abound in every good work. So here's what the apostle is saying, that when you sow seed, yes, indeed, God will give you what you need to do every good work. In other words, if you give money away, He'll give you more money to give away. To give away. Not to eat. Not to luxuriate, not to build a bigger house, not to take more vacations. And sometimes we say, well, I'm blessed with the Lord. And what that means is, well, I've got a bigger house than you do. I've got a better job than you do. I've got more money in the bank than you do. I'm blessed with the Lord. Here's what blessed of the Lord means. You're giving away more stuff than you ever thought you'd be able to give away. That's blessed of the Lord because we're blessed to be a blessing. This is Paul's mentality. So this is not a get rich, a Christian get rich scheme, which Hen and Osteen teach. And it's wrong. It's contrary to what the apostle is saying here. It's still a life of divestment. And you're going to know great blessing in the life of divestment. That's the blessing that's coming. You say, well, I don't want that blessing. Well, I'm glad you're here. Because that's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. If you don't want that blessing, then maybe you've not received Christ as Savior and Lord. Because if you've received Him, this is what you want above all else, is to have Him, to have His pleasure, to have His company, to be in fellowship and partnership with His business. This is what you want when you get converted. So if you don't want a life of giving away cheerfully, then you really don't want Him because that's what his whole life was about and is about. So he says, we reap bountifully for the purpose, of course, of giving away. Now, secondly, the blessing of cheerful giving is that we are greatly blessed because we reap bountifully. But secondly, we give from grateful hearts. Each one must give 
as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Now, Paul is doing his best here to strike a balance between exhorting the brothers on their giving on the one hand and manipulating them on the other. And he does not want to manipulate. You can see it. He's, as hard as he, he's exhorting them very hard and he's trying with all of his might and main not to manipulate them. You can see this also in his argument with Philemon about receiving his runaway slave Onesimus back as a brother. And the arguments in that letter are just so endearing and so charming because Paul is teaching Onesimus, a slave owner, that he should treat his slave as a brother. That changes everything. When he called Onesimus brother to Philemon, that destroyed human slavery right there. Because you cannot own the body of a person that's your brother. And so when Paul called him brother, that ended it for the centuries to come. And eventually it did destroy slavery in the Western world until it was revived by people who were being very uh, non-Christian in their behavior. But in the Roman Empire, among Christians, that destroyed slavery. But Paul, in his argument with Philemon, he's trying to be, he's, he wants to be sure that Philemon is making his own decision. You know, he's saying to him, basically, Philemon, it's your decision. But he says, now Philemon, uh, I think I have the Lord too. And by the way, I'm going to come by and visit you <laughs> so Paul's letting Philemon know, I'm going to be checking up on you. So he's make, using all these arguments, but still wanting Philemon to be self-motivated. Same way here. Paul, Paul's so strong, I guess it's hard for him to back down. But it, obviously we would look at this letter and say, good heavens, I, you know, talk about a strong argument for generosity. He's just overwhelming us. And Paul's doing his best to say, but it's your decision. <laughs> so he says, look, the only way you can give is when you give it willingly, volitionally, and with a cheerful heart. If the money is being exacted out of you uh, from a guilt complex, it's not acceptable to the Lord. Now, all you have to do is go back to your Old Testament, and you'll find many offerings that are turned down by the Lord. In fact, in one case, God says to Malachi, or Malachi says on behalf of God to all the people, he says, I wish you would shut the doors of your temples. I don't want any more of your sacrifices. Why? They were blemished. They were bringing, they were bringing their worst animals, not their best animals, to be sacrificed. And in fact, I've been doing my devotions in Leviticus lately. You say, man, that's pretty rough slogging. Well, unless you look at it from the perspective of what Christ has done for us. But in one place in Leviticus, it was very clear we're to bring our unblemished animals to sacrifice. We bring our best to the Lord. When we didn't, God says through Malachi, I'd rather not have your sacrifices at all. So let me say, you can give a gift that's enormous in size. And really, it is not acceptable. Because it has been exacted out of you from a guilt complex and not because you love the Lord. It's, uh, if you think God can't turn down a sacrifice, just, just look in the Old Testament. And so just because you put it in the plate, that doesn't make it acceptable. What makes it acceptable is that you're doing it because you really want to. How can I tell if I really want to? Well, here's how you can tell. If you walk around and think, man, I really am a generous person. I sure wish everybody else was as generous as I am. You know, if somebody else would just give as much as I do in this church, this church would be just fine. You know, and I know I've, I've done without a lot of things. You know, and I've gone through life uh, without some of the trips I could have had, my Cars older than everybody else's car, and, but I want you to know I've really given because I'm committed to the Lord. That is having the gift exacted out of you. 
because you think you're doing something for the Lord. You think that the Lord came out like a bandit instead of you. You are having money exacted out of you because you're begrudging it. You're taking credit for it. You're acting as though woe is me because I gave to the Lord. As soon as that attitude settles in, you have been manipulated. You're not giving willingly. When you give willingly, you see it as a high privilege. And you're looking around for more that you can give because you consider it such a great privilege to be on God's team. Just to be on His team. And just to have your offerings acceptable to Him is a great and high honor to you. And you are thrilled with what you've been able not to do in life in order to give to Him. It's a great joy to you. That's the difference. It's fundamental. This is not icing on the cake, brothers. This is the cake. And we often think only in dollars and cents. What does this organization need? What does this church need? Instead of our hearts being in love with the Lord. That's the whole game. We can manage all the rest. But nobody can manage your heart but you by the power of the Holy Spirit. You've got to manage your heart. And he says that the great advantage of this is that we give with cheerful hearts. Now, thirdly, he says in verse 7b, we do it to please the Lord. For God loves a cheerful giver. What a statement. God loves a cheerful giver. You notice in Exodus chapter 25 and then chapter 35, all the gifts that were given for the tabernacle were given with willing hearts. And that's what pleases the Lord. The sacrifices often would emit an aroma. And the idea is that the aroma goes into the nostrils of God and He is pleased. He is satisfied. Well, how do I please the Lord? I give Him joyfully. If I'm giving reluctantly or begrudgingly, it doesn't satisfy Him. Why? Because He knows that I, as His child, don't trust Him. I don't believe Him. I don't love Him. I'm not grateful to Him. But if the joy of His love for me is overflowing right through my pocketbook, right into generous giving, it actually pleases Him. You say, what can I do to please the Lord? Give cheerfully. You can actually please Him. Make your Father in heaven happy, if you will, if I can use that kind of language. It says, God loves a cheerful giver. He gets great delight out of this. Let's please Him. Do it for His sake. Secondly, uh, you'll notice that the first blessing of cheerful giving is that we're greatly blessed. But if you look at verses 8 through 10, you see that we bless others. We bless ourselves, but we also bless others. Now look at this verse 8 with me for just a moment. It's a remarkable verse. God is able to make all grace abound to you. All grace. Everything about God's grace, He's able not only to give it to you, but it calls it to abound in you. Overflowing. All grace. The grace of forgiving your enemies. The grace of sharing the gospel. The grace of worshiping with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The grace of loving your wife. The grace of giving generously. He's able to give you all grace abundantly. And look, keep reading that verse. So that all sufficiency... That word sufficiency really means self-sufficient, literally. 
But we know from 2 Corinthians that self-sufficiency is actually Christ-sufficiency because when we get to chapter 12, Paul answers the question that he raised early in the book when he says, who is sufficient for these things? In chapter 12, we get it. My grace is sufficient for you. So the grace of God makes everybody self-sufficient because you're grace-sufficient, you're Christ-sufficient. And God, one word for God in the Old Testament is the all-sufficient God. So the all-sufficient God gives you all sufficiency by His grace in all things at all times. Gentlemen, get this. In all things at all times. There's not one situation, there's not one time in your life when God's grace is not sufficient for you. And Paul is saying to us, do we see then why we abound with generosity? Because His grace is abounding to us in every circumstance, in every season, every moment of our lives. And keep reading. Uh, at all times, you, so that you may abound in every good work. Not some good works, not some works at some times, but every good work all the time. That's God's grace. So we are given this grace all the time so that all the time we may do good for other people. That's what having His grace all the time is all about. Now, look, so first of all, it's by God's provision that we bless other people. And, you know, Paul says it, James says it, you see it over and over again in the Scriptures that uh, we uh, have sufficiency from God in order to give it away to other people. We trust God's provision for us. I remember uh, my good friend John Wood, who's the senior minister at Cedar Springs Presbyterian Church in Knoxville, who was the son of a uh, Baptist pastor in Chicago, later moved to Carolina. But in his early years, he was in Chicago. And they served a uh, an urban church that was very poor and very small. And for that reason, sometimes, uh, really, John's family just didn't have what we would consider the provisions for the day. And John remembers one time, a Sunday lunch, that the Wood family was sitting around the table and they literally had nothing to eat for lunch. And he said his dad was at the head of the table and his dad bowed his head and thanked God for all the provisions that God makes for them and all the food that He's given them through the years for their family. And thank them for their, and He thanked God for their daily food. And there was nothing on the table. Now this doesn't always happen, but John said as soon as the amen was given, there was a knock on the door. And some dear woman in the church brought over food for that whole family and they had lunch that day. But the, but the lesson was, gentlemen, we thank God we trust Him. We trust Him whether the food's on the table, the food's not on the table. Because we know that what He gives us is what He wants us to have. That's what He wants us to have, whatever He gives us. And we'll take what He wants us to have, we'll manage what He wants us to have, and we'll be generous with what He gives us. Just like the widow with two mites. She would rather have skipped her next piece of bread and been able to give a cheerful offering to the Lord than to eat and not be able to offer to the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. John Bunyan, the great Puritan, put it this way. He says, A man there was, they called him mad, the more he gave, the more he had. <laughs> it's just the way it goes sometimes. So 
We bless others by God's provision. Secondly, in verses 9 and 10, notice that we do it as an act of faith and obedience. And here the Apostle Paul cites Psalm 112, verse 9. He says, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He cites the righteous man in Psalm 112. And he says, This is the life of the righteous man. He obediently gives to the poor. He has the poor in mind. And it is His practical righteousness. And then the writer of Psalm 112 goes on to say, His righteousness endures forever. Now in Psalm 111, he says the righteousness of the Lord endures forever. Here he's saying His righteousness, the righteous man's righteousness endures forever. That's an amazing statement. And it goes back to what we said last week. The proverbial writer Solomon says that he who gives to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him. Our righteousness endures forever. It's an amazing thing. You give to the poor and that gift goes right with you into heaven. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, I've had many things in my hands that I lost. The things that I placed in the hands of God, I still possess. How true it is. So notice then, we receive a great blessing through generous, cheerful giving with our hearts, cheerful hearts. And we also bless others. Now, thirdly, we end up blessing the Lord. Look at verses 11 through 15. He says, You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So he says, When you are truly generous, in particular with the poor, that that gift will eventually redound to thanksgiving to God. Now, this is an amazing thing. When you go to church on Sunday, uh, hopefully you go with the intent of simply offering your voices and your heart and your life and your gifts as an offering to God. It's a Eucharist, a thanksgiving to the Lord when you go to church. That's the reason you go to church. Because He is worthy of His whole church gathering up as a family to offer our Father thanksgiving and praise for who He is and what He's done for us. But here's what Paul is saying. You can actually add to your praise. You can actually buy some more praise to give to the Lord. (laughs) Have you ever thought about it this way? You can put your gift in for the poor. And when they receive that gift, they will thank the Lord. Now, they'll send you a thank you note too, maybe. But believe me, when the poor get their food, they ultimately thank the Lord. And so when you bless the Lord by giving a gift for the poor, you are buying more praise for the Lord. In in other words, it expands your worship. Your generous giving ends up blessing the Lord. So you can see the little... uh, the arrows at the bottom of your page there. We are enriched. That's the first step. God has given us abundance. And especially if you live in this country, uh, above all countries in the history of the world, you are enriched. That's clear. That's undebatable. Secondly, we then feed the poor. So with our abundance, we give it away to feed the poor. What's the next step? The poor thank God. That's the little formula that Paul is showing them here. So, you Corinthians, if you're grateful for your salvation, 
If you want to praise the Lord, sing all your praise songs, sing your hymns to the top of your lungs, but put some generous money in the plate, do it with a cheerful heart, you'll be blessed, then the poor are going to be blessed, and they'll bless the Lord in addition to your blessing, the Lord. So you expand the blessing that takes place. And he says, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Do you see this? Paul is saying that when the poor get your gift, they will thank God because they have something to eat. But then they're going to thank God for your faith in the gospel. So they're going to thank Him specifically for the work of Christ in the gospel because it is that gospel that enabled you to give. And Paul is saying their thanksgivings will be very specific. Not just that God provides food, but that He provides the gospel for you. And the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Now look at this. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. So I can tell you from personal experience with uh, just being part of Second Presbyterian Church, about uh, 20% of everything that comes in this church goes out for the poor. About 20% of everything that we receive, all kinds of offerings, goes for the poor either in Memphis or around the world. Now, if, if you just go fellowship just a little bit with the poor people that you're serving, and you will see they long for you. They actually love you. They, they want to know you. But because of the surpassing grace of God given to you, they want to see how this gospel works in you because they dream when they go to bed at night about being as rich as you are. That, that, they can't imagine they would ever be able to be as rich as you are. And then you're giving them money. And they, they long for you. They want to know you because they want to know how this gospel actually works. They know how it works in their life. They have to trust the Lord for food every meal. They know how that works. But they don't know how it works when you have big money and you're just giving it away. They don't know how that works. They, they long for you. And then notice they pray for you. I'm convinced that whatever blessing Second Presbyterian knows in large part is due to the people around the world and the people in Memphis who are praying for our church. And if your church is involved in serving the poor, what you'll find out is you have a whole prayer base out there of people who long to know you, they want to build a relationship with you, and they pray for you. You know one reason they pray for you? You're your, they're their lifeline. They don't have bread without you. So you become part of their prayers. And then the Lord starts answering their prayers. And you know what? I found the Lord answers the prayers of new converts and people in distress seemingly more rapidly than anybody else's prayers. <laughs> so I want to be on the prayer list of people in distress and new Christians. And so what Paul is saying is that when you're generous with them, they praise the Lord and they lift up prayers and petitions on your behalf. And then Paul ends with this amazing statement. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible or His indescribable gift. What is this gift? Well, it's the gift of, generally speaking, it's the gift of His grace. Paul is saying, look at this gift. God has poured out grace upon those who have. And by His grace, for the first time that we know in human history, those people actually let go of what God has given them to give it to people of another nationality. First time this has happened in human history. And look how gracious this is. People are loving people they've never met, strangers from another part of the world, 
who are in distress for one simple reason, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. That's an amazing thing. That's the grace of God. So Paul is saying, thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift, the gift of His grace. But then very specifically, we go back to chapter 8, verse 9. What is the thanks about? The inexpressible gift of the gift of grace, the Lord Jesus Himself, who not only set the example for us, but who lives in us and empowers us to live this joy-filled, cheerful life. Now let me just ask you, is this the life you're living? Is this your strategy for giving? You're very aware of what's in your bank account. You're very aware of what's in your uh, 401k. Are you very aware of what you're giving away? Do you watch those numbers? Do you try to elevate those numbers? Is that, is that the number that defines your success as a giver? Or is it the number in your bank account or in your savings account? We as God's people are excited about giving. And it's not enough just to give. It's really not enough just to give. We must give cheerfully. We must give knowing that God will be praised. The poor will be helped. And we ourselves will receive even more blessing that we might give even more away. That's really getting into the updraft of the Holy Spirit's work in this life. That's what it's all about. John, even John Greenleaf Whittier put it this way. He said, somehow, not only for Christmas, but all the long year through, the joy that you give to others is the joy that comes back to you. And the more you spend in blessing the poor and the lonely and sad, the more of your heart's possessions return to make you glad. Let's pray. Father, uh, please use each one of us Please disabuse us of our reluctance in giving to you and to the poor. Grant us great wisdom in giving so that we do not destroy the poor by giving them money for their next bottle of wine, but that we know how to give them food and clothing and especially, above all things, to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ that they may have eternal life as our brothers and sisters clothed in the rich righteousness of Jesus one day. Give us wise hearts and generous hearts and give us cheerful hearts. Lord, we pray that the more we give, the happier we will be. Would you please grant us that grace, all grace abounding to us, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, we may abound in all good works. Oh God, help us as we submit ourselves and our pocketbooks to you, praying that you'll convert those old pocketbooks just like you've converted our hearts. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.